In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We discover that this man, John, John the Baptist, was, he was a man who was dressed rather oddly, he, he, and he, he ate a very strange diet, for those of you who know the scriptures. Um, even by today's standards, um, his diet was very strange. He wore camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Um, he ate locusts and wild honey. How yummy is that? Don't, I like honey in my porridge, not with my locusts. Okay? I actually have had locusts in Thailand. They're all right. I'd rather have a fish supper. But, the, but what he was wearing, okay, was not important. Or what he was eating. The most important thing that John was bringing was this message. His message was, repent, turn around. You all need to have a change of mind. Why? Why, John? Because the very kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is very near. In fact, literally, the Greek reads, the kingdom of God, which is the rule, the reign, and the realm of God, is coming alongside you. Isn't that great? It's coming alongside you. And John followed this up by quoting a passage that he knew so well from the prophet Isaiah, one of Israel's major prophets. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We find out, as we read a little further into Matthew's account of John's ministry, that many came out to him to be baptized and confessed their sins. And this John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. It was a confession of sin and a turning of the mind and the will to God. And John brings his teaching on this occasion to a close by telling those who were with him, those religious elite that he was always fighting with, that he was preparing the way for his cousin, the one who would come after him, Jesus the Messiah. And what did John say about him? He said, I'm not even worthy to carry his flip-flops. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He tells the religious elite plainly, this one, the one that's coming after me, the one that I am preparing the way for, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will clear out his threshing floor gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This was a serious and a stern warning from John. And the message from John was clear. The kingdom, sorry, the king, okay, the king is coming with his kingdom. Say that with me. The king is coming with his kingdom. This realm of God, this rule, this reign of God is about to be released in a new and glorious way on the earth. And it is repentance, it's a turning around, it's this change of mind, it's this turning to God that will enable you to become a citizen of this great and glorious kingdom. And you know, this isn't to be the last time that the people in Galilee, the people in Judea, hear about this kingdom of God breaking in. No, because it is to be Jesus's central message and theme throughout all of his earthly ministry as he travels through Galilee, through Judea, and into the surrounding areas. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, is always in the heart and on the lips of the Messiah. Next in Matthew's account, he records for us one of the most incredible verses, one of the most incredible events, sorry, in his gospel. Jesus, John's cousin, he comes to be baptized of John in the Jordan, and John tries to refuse him. 
But Jesus tells John, John, it must be done to fulfill all righteousness. And we know what happens next. The heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and there's a voice from heaven that says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You all know that. Jesus is then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested of the devil. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then in his unbearable hunger, the devil comes to him. And Jesus passes the test. We all know that passage in Matthew 4. And in each instant, Jesus uses the word of God to rebuke the devil and fight off all those temptations. And I know that many of you who know your Bibles, who know the scriptures, who know God's word, see the parallel in that passage of Moses in the book of Exodus. He's up on Mount Sinai with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know what? It's not the last time that we will see this Moses parallel this morning. And what now? Well, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit after passing one of the toughest tests of his life. And now he goes to the people. And what's the message, church? What is his message? We already know it. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There it is. The same message that John had been preaching as he baptized many in the Jordan River to repentance. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it is at hand, it has drawn near, it has come alongside you. And the kingdom is here because, why? Because the king is here. You see, when the king is here, the kingdom is here. Does that make sense? You can't separate them. They're always together. The kingdom, what's kingdom short for? King's domain, kingdom. Got it? The kingdom, you always get the king with the kingdom. And Jesus tells the people in Galilee and Judea, it's breaking in. The kingdom of God is breaking in right now. It's breaking through right now. And you need to get your life sorted. You need to get yourself sorted out with God. You need to repent. You need to turn around and get with God's plan and purpose. You know, someone wrote that the kingdom, this theme of the kingdom, is the jewel in the crown of Jesus' teaching. And I would very much agree with that. It was his central theme and focus. So I think that we should pay attention to it and try and understand a little bit about it. What do you say, church? Amen. And if you read on in Matthew's gospel, just a few verses down, you start to get a little bit of a picture of what the kingdom is and what this kingdom brings. Church, it's simply, it's the rule and the reign of God, and it had come into the world. It's not a physical kingdom, it's not a physical domain, but a spiritual one, and it wasn't what many of the people in Judea and in Galilee were expecting. You see, they were waiting on a fulfillment of the ancient prophecy in Daniel 7. I can't read it this morning, I don't have time. But they wanted a king who was coming with military might, who would banish, push out the Romans from Israel, set up a throne right there in Jerusalem, as David had, to rule and reign over all the nations of the earth. They wanted a military leader, a warrior, a fighter, a deliverer, a great and glorious king, who would free them from oppression, who would deliver them from the tyranny of the emperor. They wanted a Messiah, a Redeemer, who would take Israel back to her glory days when she alone had God as her king, when she had all that power and great strength. But you know what? Jesus did not come with a physical kingdom. He came with a spiritual one, one that would not free people from their oppressors, but actually would free people from themselves, would save people from themselves, one that would lead them into true spiritual freedom, freedom from being slaves to sin, 
Freedom from the curse that was upon all humanity. Look, this was a kingdom that would take the place in the very hearts of men. This was a kingdom that took residence in the heart. The king had come, his kingdom along with him. This was the dawning of a new age for the kingdom of God. And we see its power manifesting in the next few verses of Matthew. For those of you who know Matthew's gospel, in verses 23 to 25 of chapter 4, we see the fame of Jesus grow exponentially. Exponentially. I know that's a big word. Exponentially. But it was growing beyond all imagination. And Jesus goes about Galilee. He teaches in their synagogues. And and listen, what was he doing? He was preaching the gospel of the what? The kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all disease among the people. You see, that's what happens when the kingdom of God comes to Galilee. There's healing, there's deliverance, the the demon-possessed are set free, epileptics, paralytics are healed, the king and his kingdom, his rule and his reign have come alongside you. That's what the people in Galilee were experiencing. The kingdom was breaking in in a new and glorious way. And you know what? The name of Jesus was on the lips of all the people there in Galilee, in Judea, in Jerusalem, and beyond the Jordan. That's what Matthew tells us. His fame was going out through all the land because people were witnessing what? They were witnessing the kingdom of God in their synagogues, in their villages, and in their towns. You see, for us, the idea of kingdom sometimes can seem quite foreign, even though we actually live in a kingdom. If you didn't know that, it's, it's, the clue's in the title, United Kingdom, okay? But for us, kingdom can, can seem quite a foreign concept. And you know what? Even at this time, there was many different views about what kingdom was. Well, it's simply, as I've said, the king's domain. It's the king's rule It's the king's reign. It's the king's realm. Church, it's the king's very presence. By the king being there, his kingdom is there. He has complete sovereignty. And you know what? Every king has a kingdom, and every kingdom has a manifesto. And under this manifesto, this code of conduct, conduct, sorry, live the citizens of the kingdom under this rule and authority. And this is where Matthew takes us next. Church, you following okay? Is it making sense? Say yes. All right, amen. One of the best known and most quoted passages in all of Scripture, Matthew's, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. Look, everyone's read it. Everyone knows it. It gets quoted all the time. But unfortunately, it is one of the most over-familiar and one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible. We must take time to read it study it, understand it. We must read it in its context, take time to dig into its wealth of wisdom and its life-changing truth. You see, what Matthew has recorded for us is the longest continual teaching of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. Now, what we don't know and can't know is if this was actually one continuous teaching, okay? Most scholars believe that it isn't, okay? In your Bible, it may appear, you see all those red words, all the red bit? Okay, it looks like it's one very, very long sermon. But most scholars believe that this was actually Matthew piecing together a lot of Jesus' teaching uh, over his time as a rabbi. So you've got to understand the teaching methods of the rabbis at this time in history. They were very much like 
what we would class like an itinerant evangelist who would travel and speak. Jesus would have shared the same message and content wherever he went, okay? Jesus had his teaching, and that's what he shared with the people. And what, Ma- what Matthew, in all likelihood, has done is to put together, kind of compress all of the teaching by Jesus, put it all together to form this wonderful, continuous sermon uh, in Matthew. And it is quite a feat, and I'm so glad that he did it. We have three long chapters placed side by side. Prayer, fasting, loving your enemies, worry, anxiety, adultery, divorce, treasures, judging others, murder, going the extra mile, and the best advice on the where to build a house. Jesus covers everything, doesn't he? He even tells you where the best place is to build your house. And there's so much to cover in these three incredible chapters. And obviously, I'm not gonna do it this morning, or we'll be here all day, we'll be here all week. It would take a lot of sermons to do that. But what I can tell you about all three chapters is that all of it is concerned with what? The kingdom. It's all concerned with the kingdom. This, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, is the manifesto of the king. It's the code of conduct for the kingdom of God. It tells the citizens how they should live, how they should behave, how they should conduct themselves in the affairs of their lives. 5, 6 and 7 speak to us of these things. Character, Influence, righteousness, devotion, ambition, relationships, and wholeheartedness. Look, you could study these three chapters for the rest of your life and never exhaust this manifesto that Jesus gave concerning his kingdom, his domain, his rule and reign, and what he expects from the citizens of that kingdom. But we have to start somewhere, and we're going to start in the most obvious place, the very beginning, and we're going to look at the Beatitudes over the next few weeks. We find these sayings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. Okay. Now, this word beatitude, it's a, it's a bit of a strange word. It's, I mean, do you ever use the word beatitude when you're having a conversation with someone? When was the last time you even said the word beatitude? Never. The only time I ever talk about the word beatitude is when I'm talking about the beatitudes. And the word beatitude comes from the Latin, bede, which simply means blessed. Okay, and that's how it came about. And these sayings are, in fact, they're they're simple blessings. They're simple blessings from the mouth of Jesus, but they have such profound meaning. You could never exhaust them. (laughs) It's incredible what Jesus is saying here in these eight simple statements. What exactly are these sayings about? What do they mean? What is Jesus saying in the Beatitudes? Well, that's what I hope to try and get across to you and explain to you over the next few weeks as we look at these. And here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we find Jesus making his way up the mountainside. Verse 1 of Matthew 5 tells us that when Jesus saw how many people were following him, that he decided to take them somewhere where they could all hear him teach. There's nothing in Scripture by accident. Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. And the reason that he takes them up this mountainside is that he takes them to a place we believe was called the Horns of Hutton or the Horns of Hutton. Sounds like something out of Star Wars, all right? But it was actually a place in Galilee up the side of the mountain. And it was kind of a natural amphitheater. Think of this shape here. So when when Jesus sat to speak, he had the people all gathered around him. And it was a brilliant place to speak because everyone could hear him, okay? And it's here that Jesus will start to give his kingdom manifesto to the people. And Jesus sits... Why? Because this is the teaching posture, okay, of a rabbi. So they come up the mountain, and Jesus 
getting old. 42 this week, by the way. So there's also a list over there for presents I want. You can get that later. So Jesus sits, okay? He sits down. The people come to him. And when Rabbi sat, it was when they were about to give their most important teaching, okay? Has anyone ever said to you, we need to sit down and have a chat? You know what's coming then, don't you, bro? Mark, sure Jane said that a few times to you. When someone says, we need to sit down. So when Jesus sat, everyone knew this was the time when he was going to give his most important teaching. Yes, when the disciples followed him around in his ministry, he would, we know of stories in the Gospels where he just talked to them about things. And is it important? Yes. But when Jesus sat, everyone hushed. And that was the time when he was about to say something very, very, very important. So he starts to speak these words. Put the next slide up for me, would you? You'll have to follow me here. Didn't bring my clicker. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, isn't that amazing? Let me ask you something this morning. Like myself, who has ever read these and thought, I have no idea what this is about? Like, what is Jesus saying here? What does this actually mean? Well, my friend, you're not alone. (laughs) Many, I mean, many have asked, what is Jesus actually talking about here? And you know what? The reason that we might struggle with understanding the meaning of these profound sayings is simply down to a variety of factors. The first is translation, the second is context, and the third is foundation. Next slide, please, guys. You see, when Jesus walked the earth and went about teaching in the manner of the rabbi and his dead, he would have taught in Aramaic or Hebrew. Look, no one knows for sure, but most scholars maintain that he did not speak Greek. Now, Greek is the language that our New Testament was originally written in, okay, or the originals that we have. But I believe that Jesus spoke either Hebrew or a local form of it, which was Aramaic, So what that means is that we're actually two translations away from the original because we've got, he starts with the Hebrew, then we've got the Greek, and then we've got our English. Okay, you following me? Secondly, there's context, and context is so important. The three, what are the three keys of biblical interpretation? I've told you before, context, context, context. It's not hard to remember. remember. And in order to truly understand the words of Jesus on this beautiful day, on this mountainside in Galilee, we must keep in mind where he was teaching, to whom he was speaking, what he said, and what did the original audience hear when Jesus spoke these words. And you know, if we ignore all of these things, what we end up with, unfortunately, is a very twisted Western interpretation. We're very good at doing this, just ripping something out of context and applying it to us that maybe has nothing to do with us. 
far removed from its original context, and then we make an absolute mess of the text. And I really don't, I don't like doing it. I don't want anyone here to be misled. I don't like doing that. I don't want to do that. I want to be sure that what I'm telling you is the truth of God's word. I just want you to know, I take this very seriously as well. When I'm, when I'm speaking, I, this isn't something I take lightly. I mean, I'm really, really trying to find out what this text really, really meant. But unfortunately for us, <clears throat> we've already been, been led astray a little bit by our English Bibles, okay? By the translation that we have. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's not wrong. It's just there's far more in there than what we're reading, simply because of translation. But a little more on this later in the series when we get into the text to try and discover what Jesus was saying on this day as he spoke to his disciples and those who followed him up this beautiful mountainside. Thirdly, we can't understand the words of Jesus <clears throat> without knowing and recognizing their foundation, okay? What is the foundation? It's the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that Jesus would have used, the Bible that the apostles used, okay? Remember, they didn't have a New Testament. They only had what we call the Old or the Hebrew Bible. And what we will discover is that every single one of the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks on this day has its foundation, finds its origin back in the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, you cannot understand the Beatitudes. In fact, I would say that if you don't know the Old Testament, you can't understand most of what Jesus was saying. It is the foundation to everything that he spoke, okay? And he actually used, there's a, I saw a list of the books that were most used um, by Jesus, and the Psalms and Isaiah are very high up there. So he loved the book of Psalms. He loved the book, the prophet Isaiah, and um, most of the Beatitudes will actually find their origin in the book of Psalms. And this forms a vital part of the context for understanding each of the proclamations by Jesus and why back then they didn't sound out of place? We might read them and go, I don't know what that means. Back then the people were like, ah, I know what Jesus is saying because I know where he's getting that from, okay? The people who were familiar with the scriptures in the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah, they weren't really hearing anything new, to be honest. But they were hearing it and seeing it in a new light. That's what's important about the Beatitudes as Jesus gave the words new life and a new application. That's what is key about what Jesus does here. He takes scriptures that people already knew and he gives them a new and beautiful application. You know, the first word that people would have recognized on this beautiful day was the word blessed. Okay, and that's where we need to go first. But Jesus, of course, he didn't use the word blessed because he spoke Hebrew. Jesus would have used the word um, esher, I think I'm saying that right, Esher, or its close Aramaic equivalent, okay? And we find this word many times in the Old Testament. It's all through the Old Testament. I can't go through them all, okay? But its root meaning um, is found in the word Oshar, which simply means happiness. Everyone say happy. happy. Don't you smile when you say happy? If you're ever feeling down, just say happy. You feel good, Okay. And it's actually a cluster word, so it's like a mixture of words. And it simply means, how happy. Say, how happy. How happy. Do you feel happy now? Amazing. I should be, a, you'd be paying me. <clears throat> it can also be translated as blessed, okay? Which is the translation that we have most of the times in our English Bibles. Here are a few passages where we find this word in the Old Testament. You'll know a lot of these, but I hope now you're, you're going, ah, right, I see where this is going, okay? 
Deuteronomy 33, happy are you, there's the word Isher, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Job 5, behold, Isher, happy is the man whom the Lord corrects. No one likes being corrected, but when you're being corrected by the Lord, enjoy it, okay? Blessed, Isher, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 32, Isher, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Amen. Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Psalm 84, blessed is the man whose strength is in you. Psalm 146, happy is he who has the help, of, who, has the, who has the God of Jacob for his help. Proverbs 29, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Okay, Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Now, blessed is the woman. Happy is the woman. Let's not leave the ladies out, okay? So that's what this is saying. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Or happy is he. And you know what? This is exactly the same language that Jesus uses when he makes these statements in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. And in the Greek of the New Testament, we have a word that's very closely related. And it's the word makarios, okay? Which means supremely blessed or happy. Okay, happy. In fact, it means to be, as I've said, they're supremely blessed, okay? Now, this was a word in, in Greek culture that they used to describe divine blessedness. Now, by divine, they meant their, their own gods, pagan deities, okay? It was, this word had a very pagan sense to it, which included this idea of having power and dignity and strength. But during the ministry of Jesus, this Greek word, makarios, it, 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 it took on a new sense of meaning as the church was being birthed in the book of Acts. And during the ministry of Jesus, we see this happen too. It became a word that kind of meant gospel blessedness, okay? Gospel blessedness. And it was, in fact, now a complete contradiction of its original Greek usage. It no longer referred to this idea of outward blessedness like riches and strength and courage and boldness and having lots of material things. But now it was a description of inward happiness identified with a pure character. Isn't that lovely? That's what this word now meant. And this is so important for us to understand as we go in and, and, and find out what Jesus was saying on this day. And you know what? You see this happiness with a pure character, I believe that's what God wants for all of his children. All of us, church. He wants all of us to be blessed, okay? He wants to give us true happiness, not as the world gives, true happiness, godly happiness, and pure character. And that's what the Beatitudes are all about. Kingdom character. Put up the next slide there, okay? Kingdom character. Character with a K. You see... As you read further into Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we start to get an idea of what kingdom conduct should be, okay? How God expects us to conduct ourselves as citizens of the kingdom. But in the teaching of Jesus, character always comes before conduct. Character before conduct, okay? And that's why Jesus begins with these eight simple yet very profound proclamations. And we have at the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus ascending up this mountain on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to deliver this kingdom manifesto, his kingdom law, we could call it, 
to his followers and disciples. And what did the people say? What did the people see on this day? Who did they see? What did they think when they saw this happening? Well, I believe, just like we talked about earlier, they saw a new Moses. They saw Moses once again ascending up this mountain to give the law. They saw a new leader for God's people, Israel. That's what they saw when they seen Jesus. Just, had Mo, just as Moses had ascended Mount Sinai and returned with the law of God, now Jesus ascends up this mountainside to bring a fresh revelation of the law, okay? It wasn't a new law per se. It was a, a redefining and a renewed impression and application of the law of God, a manifesto for those who would live in his kingdom. And this kingdom was to be a kingdom that was, here's an important word, countercultural. Okay, we're all called to be counter-cultural, okay? Our values, our beliefs, our faith in everything. And Jesus would turn the cultural and the religious norms on their head. That's what he was doing here. In his teaching, he would elevate the law to a new level, to its rightful place, out of the hands of those who had made it a burden to the people, those Pharisees and those Sadducees. And what he would also do, most importantly, is to pronounce those who were in that day thought of as unfortunate and not blessed, now Jesus would turn that around and he would pronounce them blessed. That's what this is about. Those who were unwanted, those who were undervalued, those who the religious elite didn't want anything to do with, Jesus now was calling them blessed. This manifesto was part of an upside-down kingdom, an inside-out kingdom, a topsy-turvy kingdom, whatever way you want to put it, Okay, it was all the wrong way around, and it would go against what most of the religious elite believed on this day. Jesus was about to turn the tables on them, just as he'd done in the temple. He was about to turn their beliefs on their heads. How would he do it? Well, as I've said, he would use the very scriptures that they claimed to know and believe and understand and live by. He was going to use their verses against them. He would use the word of God that they claimed to live by to show them that, in fact, they were outside of the kingdom. They were far off and far away from the God they claimed to know and serve. And the eight signs that Jesus would give on this day to those who had followed him would define those who were in the kingdom, not those who were outside of it. You see, the Beatitudes, these signs are all about contrast, all about contrast. These proverb-like proclamations that come from the mouth of the king define, church, this is where the Beatitudes define those who are in the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom. They are kingdom characteristics. And that's what I've entitled my talk this morning. These are the marks of a true believer, a true and committed follower of Jesus, those who belong in his kingdom, those who have been translated out of darkness and into light, these are the marks and characteristics of a true Christian, if you'll allow me to use that term. One who has been born again of water and spirit, one who has been sealed with the Holy Spirit, one who has been turned around, who's had a change of mind, who has repented, who has submitted their lives to God, who loves him, who loves God, and has submitted to the one that gave himself for them. Okay? You see, the Beatitudes, it's a description of life after repentance, it's, it's a description of life after commitment to Christ, where life should be different, okay? Where we should be different, where we're called to be different. 
we're called to be set apart. The Bible uses the word holy, consecrated, set apart for his use and for his glory. In the world, we live in the world. We're all here today. This, we're in the world, but we're called not to be of the world. In the world, but not of the world. That means we don't share in its values and we don't share in its beliefs. We don't share in its standards. We're in it, but we're not part of it. And we need to understand that the Beatitudes are not standards that we have to attain to get into the kingdom. Why? Because that would be salvation by works, and that's not what the Bible teaches. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus isn't saying, if you do these things, then you'll get this. That's not what the Beatitudes are about. They're not entrance requirements into the kingdom. They're not prerequisites to get into the kingdom. No, they're a description of life, church, inside the kingdom. This is life inside the kingdom. Next slide, please. Well, that, it was that one, actually, sorry. And you know what? If you've committed your life to Christ and you've submitted your life to him, listen to me. Today, God calls you blessed. You are blessed. If you've submitted to his will, if you've given your life to Christ, then you are blessed. God calls you happy. Say happy. Everyone's smiling. Truly happy. Now, as I've said earlier, you might read the Beatitudes and think, like Pete, hold on a second. How is someone who is poor blessed? Doesn't make any sense. That's the whole point. Okay, we'll get to that in a while. How can someone who is mourning be happy? Well, they are, but we'll get to that next week. Are you telling me that the meek, the merciful, the hungry, and the thirsting are blessed? Yeah. Sorry. And you know what? That's what Jesus calls all of us. Blessed and happy. Fortunate. Very fortunate. And that's where we'll pick things up next Sunday. And if you're a citizen of the kingdom, okay, I suggest that you be in your place next Sunday morning as we take a further step into these Beatitudes and discover what it is to have real happiness and real blessing in the kingdom of God. That's probably my phone, I'm sorry. <clears throat> as I close this morning, I want to leave you with the Beatitudes once again. Eight profound proclamations, come on up Dave, made on a mountainside by the Messiah the King, listen, who was revealing to those who heard him that the kingdom of God was in their very midst. It was alongside them. It was right there. I wish I'd have been there. I have a friend in Israel at the minute and he's posting videos every two minutes from the Sea of Galilee. For, he was at this place or where they think was this place. And I'm so jealous I would have loved to have been there when Jesus was given this sermon. But thankfully, Matthew's recorded it for us. And, and we can read it and study it and find out what Jesus was trying to say to us. This, these Beatitudes, it's, it's true kingdom character. And these, these are the things that God calls blessed. Yes, they go against everything that humanity believes will make them blessed. Church, you know that people are out there looking for happiness this idea of true, true happiness is only found in the kingdom of God. It's only found in Jesus Christ. You will not find happiness, contentment, or blessing outside of the kingdom. I've been there. doesn't exist. But now I have that happiness, that blessing, that peace, that joy, 
that passes all understanding. Do you have that? And God calls you this morning blessed. It's countercultural. It's revolutionary. What Jesus was saying on this day was revolutionary. And it was life-changing. Look, let's listen to them again. Next slide.